0: breast cancer those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver unfortunately for one in eight american women it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime and the risks are clear besides being female the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history in fact about 80 percent of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry.
1: My mom had
0: breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lily has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer. Find out about events they can attend in their city and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too.
2: I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company answers that matter.
0: You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, assistant clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine.
2: Few physicians are aware that up to 50% of the prescriptions we write are never filled. Even when the patient does initiate recommended treatment, roughly half discontinue that treatment without informing or consulting their doctor. Medication management is one area that is showing increasing risk for medical liability, as well as significant time and cost to the healthcare environment. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jan Berger, a pediatrician on staff at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago and the Senior Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer of CVS Caremark. She's an expert in the area of risk management and has published over 100 articles on reduction of medical liability. Welcome, Dr. Berger. Now, I have to admit, I was aware that many of the prescriptions that I write are never filled, and I've even spotted a few in the garbage can of my examining room, but I was still shocked at the 50% are not filled. How accurate is that number? You think that's an exaggeration or you think that's accurate?
1: Well, that's an interesting question, Dr. Stryker, in that what we see today is only a small number of times that we can be aware that a patient has not even done a first fill of a medication, that you or I, as physicians, has written for a drug and the patient never takes it. Because we don't know. We assume a patient is going to their pharmacy and filling that medication. When we first got hard evidence that this was occurring was with the advent of e-prescribing, electronic prescribing, Mm -hmm. where we have a record that a doctor wrote for the medicine, and we have a real-time record whether the patient went and filled that medicine.
2: So that's where this data comes from then, from the electronic prescriptions?
1: That is correct.
2: And are certain types of medications not filled more than others?
1: Well, there are assumptions that medications that treat problems that have no symptoms, like high blood pressure or high cholesterol, that those medications are the ones that are not filled And that those where we get instant relief, maybe asthma or pain medications, are filled more often. Where
2: does uh, contraception fall into that?
1: Contraception, that's an interesting question. We really don't have evidence one way or another. But because many people come to their physician to get contraception with the hope of not getting pregnant, we assume that first fills are occurring if it is for a contraceptive use occurring more often than maybe some others. If it is used for another reason besides actual contraception, then it could be that it is not being filled as often as some of these other medications for non-symptomatic.
2: If you're giving for relief of dysmenorrhea or menorrhagia or something, then there's a, a greater likelihood than if the person is taking it to prevent pregnancy. That is correct. And where does giving samples fall into this? Does that make it more likely that someone is going to subsequently fill a prescription, or do we have any data on that?
1: There is no data, but if you follow in talking with patients as to why they take medications and why they don't, if the medication has relieved a problem that the patient came to the doctor for, then it is more likely they will fill it. If they did not get relief or they were asymptomatic in the first place, then it is just as likely that they will not take the medication. A good example of this is antidepressants, where antidepressants don't hit their maximum benefit in a week, two weeks, or three weeks. So patients think they're not getting better, therefore they don't go and fill the prescription subsequent to exactly. the free sample.
2: Are there any cues that a physician might pick up on that might suggest that that patient's going to walk out of the office and throw the prescription out?
1: Well. First of all, I think probably the thing that helps the most is if the physician and the patient have an open and honest conversation around the medication can they afford it? Do they want to take medication? There are some people who really don't want to take medication and are embarrassed to tell their physician. So they haven't had a conversation specifically around the medication. If the patient does not ask you any questions whatsoever about the medication, it should be a red flag.
2: That's interesting because very often the physicians almost relieved when the patient doesn't ask questions because they think that means they understand it and they're satisfied with what they've been told and you're saying it's the exact
1: opposite. We are absolute optimists as physicians. We believe that our patients believe every pearl that falls out of our mouth and that totally trust us. If there isn't a really good working, trusting relationship between the patient and the physician or a long-term relationship or one that's kind of clicked, we know those that click and those that don't, Mm -hmm. those that have those warning signs of a short-term relationship, not trust or not clicking, those are also high-risk people for not taking their medicines.
2: So if you look at the reasons that someone might not fill a prescription, how often is it strictly financial?
1: It is a portion of the time. How clear that is? It is a murky issue as to how much it costs, because we think as physicians, well, the patient has a copay, it's only 5 10 or $20, but that can be a lot of money for some of our patients.
2: Especially if it's a long-term medication. So if you had to, and I don't even know if you can do this, if you had to pinpoint the one reason that someone doesn't fill it between it being a financial issue versus being worried about side effects versus thinking it's not going to help them anyway, or something else altogether, is there one particular reason that you think is the most important?
1: Generally, for a first, very first fill, the two most common reasons are cost and their belief that it's not going to help anyway. But I will tell you, interestingly, around the whole issue of medication non-adherence, whether it's the very first fill or subsequent fills, and we do know even people who start on medication, over 50% of them during the first year will fall off medication use there are in excess of 30 reasons why people don't take medications.
2: So, Dr. Berger, you've just dropped the bombshell that even if the patient does actually fill the prescription, there's at least a 50% chance that they're not going to continue to take it anyway. So you said there are 30 reasons why that might be. Can you mention some of the top reasons?
1: Surely. We've talked before about the issue of cost. Cost is one reason. Another reason is that somebody, you know, forgetfulness is often a cause for non-refill because they forget for a while. But, you know, people don't forget to go and buy their cup of coffee in the morning. So when people forget, it instills a whole other set of questions. Like, did they forget because they didn't see any problems when they forgot to take it last time, so why should they continue to take it? I have an example of a young woman who was a diabetic and was told by her doctor to go on an ACE inhibitor, and she went out of town, forgot her pills, and for the two weeks that she was out of town, she didn't feel worse for not taking it. Her blood sugars didn't change. So guess what? She came back and said, I don't need to refill this anymore.
2: How about fear of side effects? You know, people, of course, go on the internet. They talk to friends. They think that their nose is going to fall off if they take a medication. How often do you think medication is discontinued because of an inappropriate fear of or perceived fear of side effects?
1: I think that is more and more an issue lately. We know that the popular press, you know, those great medical journals, the USA Today mm-hmm. and the Wall Street Journal, talk about the side effects to many medications. We saw what happened after VIOX. There was a significant increase in patients not taking many medications after all the publicity around heart problems and Vioxx.
2: All right. So how do we fix this?
1: Well, I think that there's some pretty simple things that most of us as physicians can do. And probably the first and foremost is when you first prescribe a medication, there are five things you need to talk to your patients about. First off is what is the drug? Sounds silly, but very important. What is it treating in very simple terms? How do they take it? We say twice a day. Does that mean morning and night? If you take it if you forget to take it at night and the next morning you take two, that's twice in a day. So very specifically, how do you take it? Mm-hmm. And then talk about the side effects. When you talk about them, you don't have to go through all of them. Go through those that are either most common or most serious, but also explain to them in terms that they can understand that it is very unlikely in many cases that these side effects will occur, and if they see some of these things, don't stop taking the medication right away. Call us as physicians, and we can help them very often through those side effects.
2: Now, ideally, of course, you would have this conversation with every patient, but we all know the challenges of seeing a certain number of patients in a certain amount of time that may be taking multiple conversations. Do you think giving written material for commonly prescribed medications achieves the same goal?
1: I do not. I'll be very honest. But I do think that many of us, have auxiliary people in our offices and sometimes I know of physicians who have trained their nurses to come in and have a conversation with them regarding their medications. Another pathway I've seen is some large physician groups have brought in part-time a pharmacist and within 24 hours the pharmacist calls or reaches out to these patients and has this kind of conversation on the physician's behalf.
2: Well, I wish to thank our guest, Dr. Jan Berger, for helping us to ensure that our patients follow recommended treatments to ensure the best medical outcomes.
0: Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.
2: This ReachMD program is featured on CERMO, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.surmo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.